All right, kids ages uh, three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you guys, uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of 1 John. That is almost in the very back of your Bible. Last book in the Bible is Revelation. You got Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and you guessed it, 1 John. Uh, we're still in chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There's a, the text is in your order of worship this morning, so that's the bulletin that you hopefully got on your way in. If you don't own a Bible, there's a bunch on the back table. Grab one of those on your way out. Or if you're really bold, you can go grab one now, uh, but get one in front of you so that um, you can tell that um, this is not helpful thoughts from Rick, which are neither helpful nor probably from me. So the last time we were here, we began our series in 1 John. Some of you will remember that. Some of you were here. It was New Year's Day, so not many of you were here, but some of you. Uh, the rest of you, uh, you're just going to have to listen to the podcast. Um, what we saw last time was that John, in this letter, is confronting some innovations, innovations that have come into the churches that he was responsible for, and and these innovations are teaching some things that aren't unfamiliar to us. Some of you remember that, that these these aren't just ancient problems, these are people problems, and so we have them. They're teaching things like, you know, you can have Christianity apart from Jesus, that you can actually have Christianity without believing anything substantive about Jesus, the events that went on in his life, anything supernatural that happened. Like, that's not all that important. You can have Christianity without that. Or, um, look, you can have Christianity and reject these outdated moralities. That just, those are what ancient people thought, but not us. Because we're enlightened people. Does that sound familiar? It's an ancient problem, and it's a current problem, which means it's a people problem. And so John's response to this, that we, what we saw last time, was to remind everyone that he was an eyewitness to a person who did an actual work of redemption in time and space that reconciled us to God. That that's the important thing about what it means to be a Christian. That you can't have Christianity apart from the Christ. You can't have Christianity apart from Jesus. And that we should be incredibly suspicious, incredibly suspicious of any teaching that kind of dumps what we read in the New Testament as either incomplete, early in some trajectory of, of reading that, that uh, of course, that trajectory now, now that we're reading it in that trajectory, it lines up just perfectly with the spirit of our age. How ironic is that? We should be incredibly suspicious of anything that does that. And so this entire first chapter, and we're just, we're, we're finishing out the first chapter this morning. The entire first chapter is a kind of opening volley against those that are threatening the church with their false teaching. So last time we're establishing John's authority to say what he was going to say, why we should listen to him, why what he's saying is, uh, is crucial to what Christianity is. This week John is engaging in, in what I think is one of the most amazing aspects of the Christian faith, and that's that it allows us to be honest about who we actually are. So if you have your place in 1 John, our habit here is to stand. Uh, so if you would, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to be reading 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is God's word to us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Would you pray with me? Lord, Christianity, your, the faith that you have called us to is wonderful because it allows us to be honest. But if we are being honest, we hate to be honest. And so everything right now, whether we're a Christian or not, everything in us is pushing against wanting to, wanting to actually be honest about who we are. And yet, as we're going to see, we can't fully experience your love for us unless we fully understand the depth of our need. And so we pray that you would show us that this morning. Be with us. Open our hearts. Open our ears. Open our minds. Lord, we don't just need information. We need you to remove our unbelief. We need you to remove it and work. Not just so we can be honest about ourselves with ourselves or to you, but so that we can be honest to one another and to a world that has no paradigm for people so open about their brokenness. Help us in that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So, growing up, um, I experienced what some of you probably experienced, that rite of passage of the bygone era known as summer camp. Summer camp is where you go away for seven to ten days. Um, I'm I'm assuming they still do this. Uh, You go away for seven to ten days. You live with other campers in a cabin or something like that. You drink something called bug juice. I still don't know what that is. It was red. That's all I know is bug juice is red. Uh, And if you're like me, summer camp is also that time where you invent a new identity for yourself. Because you're with a group of people that has no clue who you are. And so one summer, one of these identities, I I was in middle school. Pretty sure it was like between my seventh and eighth grade year, which is a precarious year as it is. Um, and, and all of the guys in my uh, cabin were sitting around a campfire talking about our athletic prowess. Now, I didn't have any at the time, uh, but I wanted to engage in the conversation. So I declared boldly that I had an amazing 40 yard dash time. I was just, I was flat out awesome at the 40 yard dash. Now, none of y'all knew me, well, no, none of y'all knew me when I was in uh, middle school. My mom's not here this morning. So none of y'all knew me when I was in middle school. Um, I was intensely overweight and non-athletic, right? So I, I'm declaring that I have this great 40-yard dash time. And um, here's, the, uh, here's the reality. I have no idea what a good 40-yard dash was. No clue. I'd never run one. I'm pretty sure I would have looked silly if I did. And so when someone asked me what it was, I declared... Oh, you know, four seconds. Now, for those of you who aren't laughing right now, that is because you are as ignorant about 40-yard dash times as I was. But let me give you some perspective. The fastest 40-yard dash time in the history of the NFL was run by, anybody know? Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, Tecmo Bowl fame, right? If you've ever played Tecmo Bowl, you understand why he had the 40th fastest 40-yard dash time. You can never catch him. Um, so Bo Jackson ran his... 40-yard dash in 4.18 seconds. There was no chance I could ever get close to that then, now, or any time. And so everyone around the campfire was incredulous and declared that I should prove it. But of course I didn't, and I had very good excuses why I didn't. They were throwing down the gauntlet, right? Prove it. Prove this is true. Prove that you can, you can do this. 
No, I'm not going to do that. That that proving it is something about what John is doing this morning. He's inviting us to honesty. But unlike my fellow campers, whose only invitation to honesty was mockery, because that's what you do when you're in middle school, John invites us to honesty through the truth of the gospel. And so we're going to look at three tests this morning. Okay, There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at the test of consistency, the test of honesty, and then the test of clarity. Okay, The test of, of consistency, the test of honesty, and the test of clarity. Let's begin with the test of consistency. Okay? Now, this entire section is governed by a central theme that John lays out. John lays it out for us right there in verse 5. Look at that now. It's going to be a basis for the, these three distinct tests. The central truth is this. God is light, and in him is no darkness. And from that are going to come three if statements. God is light. Therefore, if this is true, then this. If, this is, if you're saying this, then this. Okay? But we've got to keep that, that phrase in mind as we visit these tests. So let's look at the first one. Look down at verse 6. He says, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, to get at this, we need to remember a couple things from last week. Okay? First and foremost, fellowship. Remember, we talked about the fact um, two weeks ago that fellowship is a Christian-y word. It's a church-y word. Uh, we tend to use it to mean hanging out, probably drinking coffee, um, and or talking about our hearts. Okay, that's what Christians mean when they mean fellowship. That is not what the Bible means. The Bible means, uh, fellowship in the Bible means participation. It means relationship. And so to have fellowship with God is to be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with one another insofar as we have fellowship with God. In other words, to have fellowship with God means to be a Christian. So John is saying, if you say you're a Christian, but you walk in darkness... You lie. You lie. Love that. You lie. We never say that anymore, but that's great. Well, you know, that's a big deal, right? He's basically calling a bunch of people liars. So we better be very clear on what it means to walk in darkness, okay? Now, again, in the New Testament, the, the metaphor of walking means to have your life characterized by. It means a, a way of life, a path of life. Um, so your life is characterized uh, it is set on a course in darkness. And that, that, is, that is important because we need to understand that we're talking about a pattern of life, not an occasional step. Okay, A pattern of life and not an occasional step. To walk in darkness is to live not according to God. Why? Because God is light and in him is no darkness. It's to not live according to God, but according to our own devices. It's a life of sin. In other words, this is the person who says... God is fine with me no matter what I do. God's cool with me no matter what I do. It's not just an ancient problem, is it? It's a problem today. It's a problem in the church. It's probably a problem in this church. Now, let me be clear. When we talk about this, like I said, we're talking about a course of life, not an occasional step. This is not someone who struggles with sin. If it were, it would be everyone. Right? This is not someone who struggles. This is the person who no longer struggles, who doesn't think they need to struggle. There's no struggle. Maybe they say there's struggle. There's no struggle. They're not struggling. They don't think God cares. So here's the thing. John says, this is impossible. Why? Because sin always breaks relationship. 
It always breaks relationship. Sin is turning away from God. And so he's saying, how can you say you have fellowship with him when you're turning away from him and could care less about it? The way this normally appears in the church today is the idea that the morality of the Bible doesn't matter because what God really wants is for you to express what you believe you are. Expressive individualism. This is the... um, when you, when you talk to someone who's, who's dealing with this, they'll hit you with the, why would God give me desires he doesn't want me to fulfill? Right? As if the particular way you want to express those desires is the desire itself. Listen, this is strong. This language that John gives us is strong. I know it is. But John is clear. You cannot claim to have fellowship with God while your life is defined by what he says is sin. Now, maybe you're like, Rick, that's not fair, man. It's not fair. I'm just following my heart. I get that. I totally get that. But you're assuming your heart is a faithful guide. Right? The scriptures would disagree. You know, the, the prophet Jeremiah says the, the heart is wicked beyond all things. Who can, who can know it? That it tricks you. Look, it, if you have a broken compass, it doesn't matter if it says you're going north because you're probably going west. If the compass is broken, it doesn't, it's not a faithful guide. The Bible tells us that our hearts are not faithful. We need to listen to his word and not to how we think our hearts are guiding us. So that's on the one side. If you think this, you're actually lying to yourselves. Now, in opposition to that is walking clear. Look at verse 7. John says, but, I love this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Now, when we say, when you hear uh, walk in the light, most of us will immediately think, uh, moral performance, right? If I walk in the light, okay, so walking in the darkness is doing bad things. Walking in the light is doing good things. Uh, be hard to think that ex- with the rest of what John says in this passage, okay? So think through the metaphor. To walk in the light is not just to do good things. It's to live in light. Uh, it's to live according to God's word, to live in light of God's word, God's revelation. It's depending on him for our understanding of things, which means that it's like, um, it's like turning the light on in a dark room. When you turn the light on in a dark room, you, it's not just easier to see the lamp. It's easier to see everything else, too. You see correctly not just the lamp, but everything else in the room. Walking in the light means living according to God's revelation. It's, it's living according to how God says the world works, not how we would like it to work or feel that it should work. And it's living in light of how he says we are to work. So here's, here's how we know he isn't talking about being good and perfect, morally performing, right? Because he says that if you actually walk in the light as he is in the light, oh, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus does what? Come on, you're not that Presbyterian. Does what? Cleanses us from all sin, right? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. If John meant morally performing, why would you need to be cleansed? If the point was being good enough... If you walk in life, you're working hard enough and good enough, it should say, then God will love you and everything will go well for you. That's what most of us think. But it's not what it says. This is huge because it declares that there is a need for cleansing. There is a need. God actually does care about things, about sin. Sin is real, but it also says that God will do the cleansing. Listen, if you're here this morning and you believe yourself to be a Christian... But your life is defined uh, by a lifestyle antithetical to God's word. 
whether that is through sexuality outside of biblical marriage, whether that's taking advantage of the poor, abusing your spouse or your kids, uh, using drugs or alcohol to deal with life, uh, whatever. My guess is you have confused Christianity with a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not what it is. Jesus came not to get you acquitted, but to get you reconciled. He came to reconcile you to God, not to get you acquitted from hell. He came to bring you back into relationship, that dependent relationship we were made for. And he he did that all by his grace. And so to walk in the light means to see ourselves. It's not just to see God, it's to see ourselves as God sees us. To see sin as God sees it. To let God be God and then also to receive the grace that he's provided in Jesus. Okay? Now, one last thing on this before I move on. John says that if we walk in the light, meaning both understanding who we are, And understanding the grace of God in Jesus. um, Trusting him by faith and seeking to live out that faith in him. That Jesus' blood cleanses us. Cleanses. It's a very particular word that he uses. And very important. Because it's huge for those of us who struggle with our identity in Jesus. Look, only you and God know every detail of your story. I don't know what you've done. You don't know what I've done. God knows what we've both done. When John says cleanse, that is intentional. We all, all of us, have walked in darkness. I don't care if you've been a Christian as long as you can remember. You have walked in darkness. God knew that when he came in Jesus. He knew that when he came to rescue us and his work cleanses us, washes us clean. It is like bleach on a stain. And so when you come to Jesus, you are no longer defined by those stains of sin. They are cleansed. They are cleansed. You are now defined not by what you've done, but by what Jesus has done. Okay? Now, That's the test of consistency. Now let's look at the test of honesty. Look at verse 8. John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, that last person sounded like someone who wants to have Jesus as Savior, but not not Jesus as Lord, right? Um, You know what I mean. They, they They wanted the whole, get me out of trouble, but don't tell me what to do. This person is the one who wants Jesus as Lord, but not necessarily as Savior. This is the person who, who kind of views, uh, views life in a more religious way. Right? They're, they're the more religious person who looks at his or her life and says, sin is something I used to deal with. This is easy to do, and my guess is that functionally, even if some of y'all in this room would never say that, functionally you live that. Right? So don't check out on me because I said that. Hear me out. Because this happens when we take God's standard. We look in the Bible and we take God's standard and we go, oh, that's nice, Uh, but I think I need it down here. We're going to take that, we're going to lower that standard. It's not totally disregarding God's word. We wouldn't do that. Christians wouldn't disregard God's word. But it's playing pixie choosy with it. We take one thing. Say, uh, I don't know, getting drunk or racism or greed 
And we claim that's the standard. And we've conquered it. This one thing. This is what God really cares about. There's all these other things too. But I, don't, I don't know. That's not what he really cares about. This. This thing. And I happen to be awesome at it. I'm good. We're good. This is the position of the more religious of us. And John says, if you think this, you are deceiving yourself. But why? Okay, two reasons. Two reasons why we're deceiving ourselves. Uh, The first is that you're forgetting that sin isn't about what you do. That sin is about independence from God. Right? Okay, if sin is something you used to deal with, then you don't really need Jesus anymore. And truth be told, you probably never did in the first place. All you really needed was for someone to give you the right rules to show you what that one thing was that you happen, just happen to be awesome at and allowed you to take, that, take it from there. You, you don't need God. You don't need Jesus. You just need to be good. You're independent. Which, according to the Bible, is sin. See, that's the crazy thing about sin. Sin doesn't have to look immoral. Sin is an attitude. It's what we are. And it can look really moral. The second reason is because you don't realize that you've lowered the bar on those standards that you do want to cling to. You say, oh yeah, I got the greed thing. I mean, first and foremost, I don't make enough money to be greedy. Greed, greed is those things that rich people have, like Scrooge McDuck and DuckTales, who is swimming through his money bin every day. That's greed. Me, I just, I mean, I don't have that much. I mean, I wish I did. If I did, I'd buy these things. But I don't, but I don't so I'm not really greedy. But I look on Amazon every day for all those things I could buy. If I did have money, which I don't, which means I'm not greedy, right? So what we've done is we've taken that bar and we've, we've lowered it. But you see, Jesus said... That it's out of the heart that all of those evil things come. That it's not just some behavior problem. It's a problem of the heart, which means that it's more sneaky than you think. Jesus retrained our gaze to see sin not just on a surface level, but at a deeper level. Something not just that we do, that we are. So murder is not just killing another person. It's being angry with them. That adultery isn't just sleeping with someone outside of a biblical marriage, but it's also looking on someone lustfully. That greed or that generosity isn't just giving what's left over in your wallet because you're like, man, look how awesome I am. I have these dollars I can throw in. It's giving everything you are because Jesus gave all that he is. See, the bar isn't set by looking around us because let's be honest, we're all dumpster fires. And so if we're going to set the bar of what God's standard is by looking around, even in, I mean, y'all clean up nice. So even in a nice kind of cleaned up place like this, you're missing the boat. The bar is not the dude next to you. The bar is set by Jesus. His is the life without sin. The rest of us, even even on our best day, are like, are like people holding up a birthday candle in the noonday sun, looking at, look how bright my candle is. Doesn't quite work. The opposite of this is in verse 9, right? He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So instead of claiming that we no longer deal with sin, what God's calling us to is uh, confession. Now, here's what I know about you because it's true of me, and I'm pretty sure it's true of all of us. We, we don't like confession. Confession 
on its basic level, is agreeing with someone else. In this case, in its, in its uh, kind of Christian context, it's agreeing with God. It's agreeing with how he sees things, understanding that what we do is wrong. That, and, and we don't do that, do we? We don't do that because of, because of two little words, fear and pride. Uh, fear of what will happen to us if we actually confess it. What's going to happen to me if I, if I actually lay it all out? I'm not, I'm not really sure. And, and pride in that we don't believe we're that bad. Because instead of, that, instead of confession, what we want to do is we want to mitigate. We want to blame shift. We want to, we want to kind of move things off of us. It's the, it's the I'm sorry but phenomenon, right? Some of you all heard me say this before. When you hear I'm sorry but, that word but completely eliminates everything that came before it. I'm sorry but... Blah, 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 means blah, 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 blah is the real issue, and the I'm sorry is not. Just get rid of that. Confession is scary because it puts us in the hands of God. What's he going to do with us? If we can kind of keep up an illusion, it at least makes us feel like we're hiding, but what does he do with us if, he, if we completely put ourselves in his hands. And we fear that because we believe the lie that started in the garden, that God's not trustworthy, that he's out to get us, that he doesn't love us, that he's trying to hold us back, that he's not for our good. And this is what makes this verse so amazing. So, so look at that verse, okay? Look, look at the verse, not at me. Look, look at the verse, okay? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. So to confess our sins is to go to God and declare that we have no hope outside of us. We have no hope outside of us. We have no excuse within us. And to lay ourselves at his mercy revealed in Jesus. And when we do that, we are told that God is faithful and just. Now here's what that means. The faithful part I think is probably pretty easy. Because the faithful means that God has promised to actually rescue us if we come to him by faith. And so he's going to do that. He's faithful. That's what he does. We put our trust alone in Jesus and we're going to be rescued. It isn't Jesus plus anything, right? You, you, can't, you can't put your faith in Jesus plus any of your false saviors. Whether those are religious saviors like morality and goodness. Or whether they're um, non-religious, irreligious saviors like sex, money, power, uh, affirmation. You, you get the point. He's faithful. You put your faith in Christ and he is faithful to cleanse you. But here's the best part. It also says he is just. How is that possible? I mean, think about that for a second. How can someone be just in forgiving? Those categories don't work for us, do they? Because to be just is to take out your pound of flesh. But here John is saying that if you come to him and you confess what, what you've done, he's actually just in forgiving you. Ah, this is the beauty of the gospel. How can God be just in forgiving? He can be just because Jesus takes our place. The theological term for this is substitutionary atonement. Okay? Jesus switches places with us. When you come to Christ by faith, what happens is Jesus gets what we deserve and we get what he deserves. Which means that if we are truly trusting in Jesus and God were to punish us for our sin, he would not be just. He would be an unjust and wicked God and not faithful. 
So I want you to think about that because the next time that you're struggling with, I know God can forgive me, but I can't forgive me. What you're really doing is you're accusing God. You're not good enough. Jesus' work isn't enough for me. My true God can't forgive me, even if you did. Jesus paid it all. You are forgiven and cleansed because Jesus took both your sin and your shame. That's the test of consistency and the test of clarity. Now, or, now, or sorry, honesty. Now let's look at the test of clarity. Look down at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, that sounds an awful lot like the first one, right? Or the, the last one that we did, right? Um, and in fact, many of our Bibles kind of position that in such a way in the paragraphing to make it seem like this is just part of the last thing. But, but um, in the original, it's very clear that it's separate. So grammatically, this is not saying um, that you no longer sin. This is saying that you never have. This is not saying that you, you, um, you now have no problem with this because you've conquered it. This is, I, I never did and I, conti- and I still don't. I don't have this issue. The last one is dealing with an issue of, of misunderstanding our behaviors. This one is misunderstanding our nature. This is the person who claims, I, I've never really had anything to repent of. I have a rather famous one of those these days. In John's day, this was saying God isn't about a code. He's about knowledge. He's about understanding, your self-understanding. And so uh, for, for God to, to, to rescue us is to give us understanding. It came to be known as something called Gnosticism. In our day, it's the notion that if there is a God, he's not interested in categories like sin, unless those sin involves like exclusion of people and or violence. Right? But everything else, he's not really interested in. He's more like a cosmic grandpa. Always smiles, is half blind, gives us candy, even though because he can't see what we're doing. And he doesn't really care. He's just smiling. Have a candy. Have a mint. Here's the problem with that. It's completely antithetical both to the Bible and to your experience. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you're like, but th- trust me, this doesn't line up with your experience either. On the biblical side, Jesus himself said that we sin because we're sinners, right? Out of the heart comes all of these evil things. That, that, our, that sin is not a behavior problem, it's a heart problem. It's about what we are. Our natures are messed up. The core of our being is messed up. And because of this, we now act in tons of ways that betray God and others. That, that's the biblical side. But what I'd want to say is, look, you know this is true. Because... You and I, we can't even keep our own moral code. We can't even keep the things that we think are, we're really awesome at. We know we're falling short of that. You feel shame. You feel guilt at times. You hurt people, and so do I. Listen, some of you all know me. I kind of pride myself on being rather cool and even-keeled. Right? Like I don't, I'm not very excitable on either end of the spectrum. Let me seem really weird because you're like, you're really loud though. I know, but I don't get really excited about much. So I, I'm, not, I'm not super excitable. The other day, uh, this collision of things happened um, that kind of got me all spun up. I mean, all spun up. And, uh, and so it, it's in the evening. I'm tired. I'm all spun up. I'm kind of, my, my, 
my heart rate's up. I know that because I have a Fitbit now. And um, so uh, my, my heart rate's up, and I'm just, I'm on the edge, right? And so um, my wife comes in, and we have, it's just not even a disagreement. Like, it was a lot of assuming on my part, um, which quickly escalates to the point where I am yelling. Some of you are all like, so? I do not yell. I take a lot of pride in that. I was yelling at my wife. I've never yelled at her before. I've been married for 16 years. And a couple weeks ago was the first time I've ever yelled at my wife. Like yelled, yelled. Like not like got in a little argument and had raised what like yelled. And in that moment, I betrayed th- three things. I betrayed God for raging at his image and demanding that she treat me like she treats him. I betrayed my wife because I wasn't loving her as Christ loved the church. But what was probably the hardest for me is that I betrayed my own idol of being very cool and composed. And it came out of nowhere. To deny that you are a sinner is to call God a liar because his word says we are. All of us, universally, broken. It says that we are hopelessly broken and in need of rescue. You can't be cool with God and call him a liar at the same time. I don't know if you've ever tried that with someone. It doesn't go well. It'll go even worse with God. Now here's the thing about all of these, right? They all deal with our brokenness, our sin. And some of you in here are thinking, this is what bugs me about Christianity. Why is Christianity obsessed with sin? Why is every time some preacher got to get up, he's got to use that word? Like, what, what is the deal, right? Uh, maybe Christianity is obsessed with sin, but probably not for the reason you think. Because, you see, religious people get obsessed with breaking of the rules because they want to show how great they are. But Christians, true biblical Christians, okay? Now, I can't, claim, I can't make a claim for everyone who claims to be a Christian. But, if, but as, as the Bible understands it, Christianity talks about sin, not to show how great you are, but to show how awesome God is and to show how loved you are. See, those first two tests are both about seeing things as God sees them, calling sin, sin, admitting that we deal with it every day and that when we do, it actually releases the forgiveness of God. That to tell the truth about ourselves to him actually releases his forgiveness towards us. See, we tend to think that God is like waiting for us to get our act together. Like what God really wants is I I know I've blown it, but what I've got to do is I've got to fix myself up. And then I come to him and when I show him how serious I think the situation is, how how awful I feel about it and the steps that I've taken to make it better, then he'll be okay with me. That is garbage. God is awesome because he has done everything that is necessary for our forgiveness in Jesus. Grace comes for us because of what Jesus has 
done. Seeing the depth of our sin, talking about sin isn't to make us look great, it's to make God look great. Because how could someone like that, someone so perfect, and I am so broken, be so gracious to me? Well, that's the second one. Because it also shows us how loved we are. Listen, if you don't get anything else from this message, I need you to hear this. You cannot understand the depths of the love of God unless you grasp the depths of your own sin. You cannot understand the depths of the love of God unless you grasp the depths of your own sin. You want to know what one of my wife's biggest fears is? See, she grew up with an alcoholic father. And he yelled a lot. One of my wife's biggest fears is yelling. And so in that moment, when she was willing, when I had blown it, I've never blown it like that before, and it's a particular bad issue with her, and I blew it, and she forgave me? You don't know love like that. She actually loved me that much. I took her biggest fear, and I threw it in her face. She said, "I, I forgive you hurt, but I forgive you. That told me how loved I was by her. And it was incredibly disrupting because love costs. And so here's the thing. If you've got just a little sin, just a little bitty sin, then you only need a little grace from a little Savior to reconcile you to a very little God. But when you admit that you're a big sinner, I mean a big sinner. You will actually receive boundless grace from a magnificent Savior reconciling you to an infinitely loving God. So long as you hold on, hold on to your sin, hold it in, and never actually admit it and talk about it, you will believe, listen to me, you will believe that you are loved based on your performance. You will believe that if I ever violate, if I ever let anyone know, if I ever show this to anyone, I will completely be cast off. But if you bring it to him, if you bring it to the one that you've actually sinned against, as David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, then you can see that you are accepted not because of what you do, but ultimately and finally and fully because of what Jesus alone did. Would you pray with me? Lord, I praise you for your word and I'm thankful for it. I praise you that you are more than enough. I thank you that you show us who we are, but God, if we're being honest with ourselves, many of us don't see it. Even if we've been a Christian a long time, we still don't see it. And so I'm going to ask for something crazy. I'm going to ask for you to actually open our eyes to the depths of our need. And I pray that as you do that, you would also open our eyes to the depths of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. That we would not be cast into despair, which is just another form of pride, but would actually fall on the mercy of God in Christ and see how loved we are. We have failed you utterly and you've loved us totally convince us of this, that we might be bold in our declaration of who we actually are, not to justify ourselves, 
to give you glory. And as you receive that glory, Lord, we will add to it more and more. Thank you for the work of Jesus, for the work of the Spirit to apply and apply that work to us and to keep us growing in it. And thank you, Father, that you determined all of this out of your great love for us. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.